Welcome to Carceral Studies Conversations, a series that seeks to understand and illuminate the carceral states past and present so as to deconstruct these complex systems that structure society and perpetuate harm. I am recording from the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita and affiliated tribes and was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations. Our guest today, Guy Emerson Mount, is recording from the traditional lands of the Muscogee Creek Nation, who were dispossessed of their land by the U.S. government and removed westward through what became known as the Trail of Tears. Our guest today, as I just said, is Guy Emerson Mount, an assistant professor of African American history at Auburn University, focusing on the intersection of Black transnationalism, Western modernity, and global empires. His current book project is a global history of emancipation told through the lived realities of transnational Black workers who sought a new life in the Pacific. As part of his research into the lasting legacies of slavery, Professor Mount recently co-founded the scholarly team that uncovered the University of Chicago's historical ties to slavery. He is also the associate editor of Black Perspectives, the world's largest online destination for African-American history. Thank you so much for being in conversation today. No, thanks, Alex. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so I want to I wanna start because we're going to look through these historical linkages of slavery um, as it relates to the carceral state. And I want to sort of start at the beginning in this moment of emancipation in the 1860s, where your research also focuses on. So what did emancipation mean to freed people? What alternative world or alternative reality did freedom mean? Thanks. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a big question. And um, one of the ways I always kind of start this is by saying that uh, emancipation wasn't a singular moment, but it was a very long historical process that began um, with resistance to the carceral state, to the system of transatlantic slavery from the beginning and from the coastlines of Africa. Um, you have this incipient move towards emancipation. So as slavery is kind of building and growing, the forces of emancipation among enslaved peoples are also building and kind of growing. And um, it was always this incomplete kind of process, a sporadic process with maroon communities. There's a lot of great new work being done on kind of fugitivity and the ways in which um, kind of breaking away from that system of slavery to the extent possible while it was still legal um, was a a thing and was a very important, uh, necessary process and put placing enslaved peoples as the pinnacle abolitionists who were the ones kind of driving forward um, the, the, the kind of white uh, allies that would take, take hold things later. Um, so that's kind of always important to keep in mind that emancipation is a long process started, initiated, and sustained by enslaved peoples. Um, of course, the legal moment, and there were also several legal moments in which emancipation happened. Um, you know, through Lincoln and through um, uh, constitutional amendments, et cetera. Um, that moment and that kind of kind of time was was met with uh, a mixture of emotions by enslaved peoples. You had enslaved peoples who were obviously elated. You had enslaved peoples that were thinking the worst is yet to come, that at this moment of emancipation, all hell is going to break loose even further and there's going to be retribution to kind of pay for this. And the, that uh, kind of finding families was one of the key things that people did for protection and to protect those loved ones who they were very much kind of fearful. So it wasn't that enslaved peoples were afraid of freedom per se, but they were afraid of what could happen at the end of this moment. So there's of course the jubilation, the kind of overjoy, and that's what people, the warm fuzzy feelings that people have uh, kind of are, are displayed in the, in the uh, popular renderings of emancipation as a singular moment where people were universally overjoyed. But at the same time, there was just as much kind of fear, worry and anxiety about what could possibly kind of come next. And in terms of what it meant, um, we, we have to kind of think about, um, I think the best book here is maybe Thomas Holt's The Problem of Freedom. So in terms of what freedom meant, um, Thomas Holt frames freedom as a problem, not so much for enslaved peoples, but certainly for racial capitalists. Because one of the things that freedom meant for enslaved peoples was a sense of sovereignty and a removal of their labor from the capitalist mode of production. So formerly enslaved peoples who had been enmeshed in this world system of uh, first uh, sugar and then cotton 
one of the first things that enslaved peoples wanted to do was to get some land and remove themselves from that capitalist means of production, have a self-sufficient farm where they could kind of be left alone. And so the problem was for racial capitalism. Freedom became this intense problem for racial capitalism because how are you going to get these formerly enslaved peoples to grow the cotton and to grow the sugar when they don't want to? That freedom for them means not growing sugar, not growing cotton, but growing fruits and vegetables and raising livestock and just having a self-sufficient family farm that they retreated to. And we see this across the Atlantic world. Uh, Thomas Holt's book is centered in Jamaica, but the same kind of process happens for enslaved peoples in the U.S. is that they remove themselves from that capitalist marketplace. It becomes a problem for capitalism because they don't have the labor that they had previously gotten for free. And that is kind of the crux of that post-emancipation period um, in many ways. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot in there. Um, I want to get to sort of racial capitalism and this problem of freedom in a second. But before that, because you mentioned emancipation as this longer moment sustained by enslaved people, enacted by enslaved people. And I'm wondering um, if sort of there's, and it was, I think uh, Kelly Carter Jackson writes about how black abolitionists look to examples like Haiti and elsewhere for inspiration. Is there a similar point in freedom where um, freed people across the U.S. are looking to Jamaica, to Haiti or elsewhere for sort of alternatives to capitalist societies? Yeah, so now you're definitely my wheelhouse because uh, kind of this black internationalism has been one of the most exciting kind of trends in black history that in some ways is really, it's also as old as black history itself. People thinking transnationally, I mean, African American history is, of course, African history in America and vice versa. Um, and so it's that vice versa that we've really kind of only started to kind of really think through here. And so one of the places I always point to here in terms of thinking about moments and places in my, in my work where uh, this idea of emancipation transnationally makes sense is as black people confront global empire. So as capitalists uh, kind of realize slavery is officially no longer off the table, they immediately start to look, and really even prior to emancipation itself, we're looking to replicate uh, racial capitalism in other venues. And so for the United States, this is going to really begin with Hawaii um, and kind of looking at Hawaii as a, a site of plantation agriculture. You've got black people who uh, run away from slavery and run to Hawaii. I've got a couple examples that I've drawn out from there, both from the Caribbean as well as from the U.S., kind of fugitivity in Hawaii. Um, as empire is being kind of built. And then it's really going to come online uh, when the Philippines uh, comes online, when the United States kind of takes over the Spanish empire and uh, formerly enslaved peoples are looking to Hawaii and the calls uh, by Filipinos to have independence and to have their own nation and have their own state, their own polity that is removed from these colonial uh, forces, these European dominated forces. And there's going to be a back and forth exchange that's going to happen there, kind of an Afro-Asian diasporic network where Filipinos are coming to the United States, uh, African-Americans are going to the Philippines, and they're kind of trading notes, as it were, about this global state of racial capitalism and what freedom, emancipation, sovereignty, what all of those concepts are going to to mean. And so, yeah, the transnational component can kind of never be uh, uh, understated. And some of the things you find in the archives are just absolutely amazing. I have one letter from a, a sharecropper in Alabama who basically says, um, get me anywhere. Like I, the United States, I need to get out of here. Take me to the closest destination to the Philippines as you can, and I'll figure it out from there. And so that desire to be elsewhere is a notion I've been kind of working through in my work as well. The idea that um, there, there is an elsewhere, there might be an elsewhere, there could be a, a world that might be created outside of this realm of racial capitalism, anti-blackness, etc., um, was always a desire, was always part of you know, what Robin Kelly calls the, the radical black imaginary and this imagination to, to think things through in a different way, construct new worlds. Uh, Adam Getachow works on old uh, uh, kind of philosophical notions of, of world making in her new book as well to think about kind of what does it mean to make a world um, all that's happening all that's part of the process yeah that, that makes sense and it's, I, I like how you're tying together sort of there's on this one hand the hope but then you're bridging there's this racial capitalism and it's so interconnected with empire um, that they both move in tandem across the world so before thinking about that I just can you explain I mean looking at 
Manning, Maribel, Robin Kelly, as you said, what is racial capitalism? What does that mean and how does it tie to the project of empire? So if you, uh, if you think this through in terms of uh, Cedric Robinson's black Marxism, where, you know, some of this, uh, where the term is kind of used, but interestingly, kind of, uh, he, he didn't really pick it up much in his lifetime. It was kind of his, uh, his followers and the people that looked at him that kind of thought of this, uh, this term racial capital. There have been some great think pieces recently kind of deconstructing it and kind of the misuses of it. And I think, so starting in terms of before defining it, I always try to kind of misdefine or make sure that we we know which things are uh, how it's being used and invoked in ways that aren't necessarily useful or productive. So people often get the misunderstanding if they didn't read Cedric Robinson, for example, right? Who the thesis there, remember, is that uh, capitalism, historically speaking, as a process that develops, is always already a racialized system. And he spends a great deal of his time in European history, actually, which most people who haven't read the book don't know this. But he looks at things like the Slavs and um, looks at things like the Irish and realizes that there was a certain kind of proto-racial formation, which which he calls racialism um, that existed prior to the transatlantic slave trade that Europeans are going to then bring to, lop onto, and expand dramatically um, this notion of race, this concept of race is going to get built out over the course of the transatlantic slave trade and the development of capitalism, that these two things are happening historically in an interconnected kind of way. Well, from a lot of people they, who haven't read the book, they um, haven't done the reading, right? They uh, will often just think that, oh yeah, it just means apply Marxism to black situations, situations where black people are, and kind of there's this economic reductionism to just a traditional Marxism that uh, uh, is exactly the opposite of what Cedric Robinson was doing. He was actually further in the book goes into kind of pointing out all of the flaws of this approach that that racial capitalism doesn't just mean uh, thinking about the economic or the Marxist interpretations that can be placed upon uh, black peoples kind of as an external invading force almost right but that it's quite the opposite right is that Marxism has a big hole in it in some ways and there's a de- obviously debate about the extent to which Marx actually did kind of foreshadow or did conceptualize or think about problems of race and problems of racism and empire. He, there's indications that he you know, had things planned, future volumes of capital, for example, where he was going to address empire, colonialism, et cetera, in a more sustained way. Others claim that it's already in there. He just Again, haven't done the readings, haven't read enough Marx to realize that racial capitalism is already part of Marxism per se. So again, this is an ongoing debate among scholars. It's kind of wonky. But the bottom line is that um, there's there's a problem with thinking about capitalism, thinking about a Marxist interpretation that doesn't account for race. And to me, that's the heart of kind of racial capitalism as a discourse of analysis, is that it's a way to bring those things together and realize that they're always together. They've always been together. You really can't intelligently talk about capitalism if you're not talking about racism. And and if you're thinking about racism in a way that's somehow outside of or removed from capitalism, uh, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, that's that's a great explanation. And now for those listeners who don't want to read uh, Cedric Robinson, they still should, but they don't. They can pass the exams. Um, so yeah, it's, it's great that both of these race systems of racism and systems of capitalism rely on these hierarchies um, and they can't be disentangled. So in, in turning back then to these moments after emancipation or moments during reconstruction, were there conceptions of reparations? Were they anti-capitalist? Were they capitalist? What did reparations mean in the, in that 1860s 1870s moment and how did how does that change over the next sub- subsequent decades as you start to see that um, as people feared that freedom as Thomas Holt said as that was realized so of course it, it, it varies based on the people I mean it's as diverse I mean the, the these freedom dreams that Robin Kelly talks about the kind of desire for reparation the form that reparations can take what reparations means to uh, people is as diverse as the people who were harmed themselves even though individuals were harmed kind of systemically and in kind of universal ways let's say um, people's conceptualizations of reparations were different. So for many, it meant land, it meant ownership of land and private property. But for others, it meant kind of use and access to land. And in many ways, you know, if you think of the Port Royal experiment, um, in some ways it was, uh, 
to the extent that there were kind of communal aspects to it, there were ways in which kind of private ownership of land was understood as part of the problem. And um, this was especially true, of course, in kind of maroonage situations where you had triracial isolate groups and formerly enslaved peoples living amongst indigenous peoples where questions of land and land use were very, very central. And the idea of land ownership was uh, seen as part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So it varied, of course, right, from uh, in individual places, individual situations, what repair actually looked like. Um, yeah, it was in terms of how it's changed over time, one of the things that um, I think has happened is that um, the systemic analysis is is kind of there, I think, more more precisely. And notions such as kind of mental health, broader issues beyond just material interest, mental health, systemic analysis, the transformation of institutions, uh, the breaking down of economic systems, those have been, I think, more articulated or articulated maybe in a different kind of way than they were, let's say, in the 1860s, right? Um, and right after, um, and periods after, right after emancipation. So there's, uh, yeah, there, there are seeds to all of this, I think, kind of earlier on, but I think uh, you've got kind of sh- a sharper, broader lens um, that's been uh, that's been developing over time, a broader conceptualization of what reparations can mean. And I think a realization, and this is maybe where some of like Frank Wilderson's work and kind of Afro-pessimism, I think, comes in, the realization that, okay, ending capitalism alone is not actually even enough. It's a necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition because going back to racial capitalism, um, it's not the case. And I, I, there's some who think that, let's say, an Afro-pessimist uh, interpretation and a racial capitalist interpretation are in some ways in tension. There are tensions. But I think what what is very clear is that if things are to, to action – Anti-blackness can remain even after certain structures and systems go, and that's the real, the real, I think, value to Afro-pessimism as a as an intervention here to let us know that um, it's uh, it's a big it's a big set of fish we're trying to fry in many ways. It's a it's a big world that has to be over 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 uh, yeah, kind of undone and and then over uh, remade in a lot of ways. So yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you you frame that as reparations and these ideas are both retrospective. They're both looking backwards and looking at this history, both of harms and of fights for justice, but they're also very much forward looking. They're looking to build a more just world to ensure that that harm never occurs. Um, So, and you mentioned today, there's this more systemic, uh, more broadly analyzed idea of reparations. So I want to get into how is the lack of reparations, whether that's um, the U.S. or Empire Euro, um, European nations not dealing with anti-blackness, how is this lack of reparations in any form um, contributed to these enduring inequalities and injustices? So I think the best way to uh, think about this is, you know, kind of uh, going back to um, uh racial capitalism in a lot of ways. Um, if you're, if you're going to be in within a system of capitalism and we all know anybody who's kind of looked at it even ca- casually, um, system of capitalism benefits those with capital. It's going to make the rich richer and the poor poor. It does a fantastic job at doing that. And so if you don't have kind of material reparations, which again, is just one small aspect of a wider uh, remaking of the world as it were, right? If you don't have just the basic material uh, repair for the labor that was stolen, for the wealth that was extracted, you're going to, and, and you just do nothing else. You don't even need to do anything else affirmatively at that point, rather than let capitalism do what capitalism is going to do. You're going to have, as we all know, kind of a, a 10 to 1 wealth gap currently in the United States between black households and white households. And if you just say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, the, the, best estimates we have is it will take something like 223 years for black families to reach the current wealth that white families have under capitalism with the current levels of wealth that both those communities have. That's assuming white families don't gain anything on the money that they currently have. So it's simply not going to happen, not just in our lifetimes, but ever. So without reparations, we would have to all 
decide that this is an acceptable outcome and that's an acceptable world that we can live in forever. And so to me, that's where the, just that point alone in terms of the lack of reparations and what that means to current modes of justice in a capitalist economy, assuming it's that that's going to be here for the rest of our lifetime, which I don't think is certain. Um, things happen really quickly and strangely in history. Maybe we can get rid of capitalism. But again, the Afro-pessimists will tell us, be careful, because just because you get rid of capitalism doesn't mean anti-blackness is gone. There's still going to be work to do. And that anti-capitalist movement has to account for the anti-blackness within that movement itself and within some of the assumptions within Marxism and, and uh, anti-capitalist work in and of itself. But reparations to me, um, at least the material part, which again, we never want to reduce reparations to just that material, but that's just one example, a material example of the ways in which a lack of reparations is continuing to perpetuate inequalities. Um, because as that ex extraction continues and the extraction that uh, happens and the filtering up, the trickle up economics that we've seen for the past, really in my lifetime, 40, 50 some odd years, um, it's, it's going to continue and you wouldn't even need to do anything but not do reparations to have continuing, a continuing decline in black wealth, opportunity, etc. Yeah, that's that's great. And I'm going to ask you to expand. So the one one half is absolutely the material side because we see this fundamental wealth inequality and how that's with built within the system, and it's a key function. It's a key feature of the capitalist system. Um, and I know a number of organizers and movements fighting for reparations broaden it out. There's on one hand the material, and you mentioned the various mental health aspects, other aspects, um, but tying this together to the carceral state. Um, broadly conceived. How have these organizers envisioned reparations as a way to challenge uh, the carceral state and sort of reimagine what justice means? Yeah, no, that's that's great. And I think in many ways, when I conceptualize reparations, that's one of the key uh, elements is that it's a re-rendering of justice, that the carceral state represents a very particular iteration of what it imagines to be justice, um, which is in fact, of course, a deep injustice. Um, and that is that it's a punitive state, that, that justice is fundamentally a punitive measure in the carceral state. Whereas for reparations and reparative justice, it flips that on its head and says, no, justice is actually a reparative and a restorative act, that kind of punishment, that harming, this is, I take this from Fania Davis, who always says, we live in a current system that says harming people who harm people is good because if we harm people who harm people, it will show people that harming people is bad. And it just doesn't make sense if you stop and even think about it rationally. It's just a perpetuating a system of harm and a system of violence effectively that is uh, not, uh, I think, it, it's not secondary or it's not kind of a, a, a second, a second uh, part of the carceral state, but it's intricate to the part to the carceral state. The carceral state is a, in and of itself, I think, a tautology. It's a, it's redundant. Right, the state itself is a form of incarceration. It's a it's a form of ensnarement, entrapment, and violence. One of, of course, Max Weber's basic uh, definitions of the state, which isn't complete but is is helpful, is that it attempts to monopolize the legitimate use of violence within the territory it claims sovereignty over. And so, you, you can't have a a non carceral state. You can't have a non-violent state. States themselves at their iteration are violence. And so when people think about and talk about, you know, repairing the carceral state, um, sometimes destruction is reparative, right? Sometimes destroying something like a state is a reparative act because it's a harm-producing institution. So if you have a harm-producing institution like a state, um, undoing that often you're going you're gonna to have to at some point get rid of that harm-producing state, knowing that in our current iteration, you're not going to be able to make it a, a non-harm-producing institution. I mean, when you can do that, it's great. If you, Universities might have the capacity to do this. You're not, I think if it comes to like abolishing the university versus transforming, let's say, something like the University of Chicago from a harm producing institution to a harm or reducing institution, I think that might be possible at something like a university. I'm less convinced it's it's possible through a state. I mean, the Vatican has a jail. The Vatican has tiny little states supposedly run by God. It's, it, 
it's it's hard to kind of imagine that in many ways um, when you know the history of state formation and the ways in which states kind of operate. Um, they're punitive systems. They're systems of violence. And if we want to live in systems of peace, systems of restoration, um, we have to think about reparations as a way of being in the world, a way of life that you're constantly working on and towards so that when harm happens in a community, instead of turning to the state, instead of turning to kind of carceral punitive solutions to the harm that happened. If you're addressing that harm at a community level, um, whether it's interpersonal harm, systemic harm, whatever it might be, if you're thinking reparatively and restoratively and applying that solution prior to the intervention of the state, to me, that's one of the possible pathways forward in terms of withering away the influence and the violence of the carceral state is for communities to take that into their own hands and be able to kind of solve issues of justice through reparations at an interpersonal level. Um, and then let that be a kind of a, a starting point for people to think and practice and work on reparations to the point that they can make a more political kind of claim on things. And it's not an either or, of course, the things are, are already on the ground, I think, with activists working at the same time, that people that are demanding reparations from the state and demanding freedom from the state are demanding the ability to not have the state involved in their lives while at the same time using the state as a, as a ways in which to capture resources that are already owed to communities and the communities need in order to continue practicing reparations on a daily basis and harm reduction techniques on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, that's a great point that this is this process of rethinking justice, of rethinking um, who has a or what has a monopoly on violence, on justice, on the idea of justice, and as of now, as Weber and many other scholars have said, it's the state. But it, as you're as you're conceiving it, it's an intensely local project to rethink justice. It it can't happen at the, on a nation level before each individual community, each individual person um, recognizes harm in a current system and proposes and enacts and works towards as a continuous project something else. Yeah, and it's not necessarily an either or or a, or there's not a, an order of operations, as it were. Um, and this happens with reparations as a whole. Like, for example, should memorialization come before restitution, right, and financial compensation? What's the proper ordering? I don't think there's a set ordering of this, like local versus national versus international, or um, which app. I think it's just every place is going to be different, and things are going to kind of play out as they're as they as they're able to play out. And so I, I definitely don't, uh, yeah, I definitely wouldn't say that I'd prioritize um, any one ordering or any one direction, because in some ways they're always, all of them are always going at the same time. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you for that. Um, and I, I do want to follow up with something you mentioned about this idea of the university versus these other systems of harm. Um, and I know you've done a lot of work sort of at pushing the University of Chicago to recognize its past. Um, and to work towards a better future. And I want to ask you that. I want to bring up um, one of my favorite lines, again, from Robin Kelly, who's made a number of appearances today. He, he mentions these black radicals um, during the 1960s and 1970s used university resources. They reappropriated the university resources for their own liberational education. And I, I want to sort of, using that to frame this, how... Can you talk about your work at the University of Chicago illuminating its linkages to slavery? Were there roadblocks and why? What was the goal of that? Sure. So as much as I uh, kind of still hold that states, nation states are kind of irredeemable, one way to think about universities that I often bring up is that they're also nations in miniature. And to a certain extent, states in miniature, and maybe to another extent, nation states in miniature. So if you think about a university as it kind of functions, not the mythology they kind of you know put out there, but the actual university as it exists, the what actual existing university, um, it uh, it's. It has its banners, it has its mantras, it has its kind of national identities, it has its armies, namely its campus police force. In the case of the University of Chicago, it has its 
borders and its boundaries, which it polices. Um, it has a certain level of governance and a certain level of sovereignty and autonomy over what happens within that university space. Now, in this case, it's completely anti-democratic, right? It's not like professors vote for the provost or students vote for their professors or the provost, right? It's a wealthy board of trustees that assigns a, a a chancellor and a president. And so in that way, it's very much like a state in that, um, right, you have an anti-democratic uh, system of governance. Um, so there are a lot of similarities, let's say, between a state and a, and a university. But the work at the University of Chicago, when we looked at that and we said, okay, what's the state of play and what can happen here? There are also possibilities at universities that I think don't exist in states um, because faculty and students actually are able to, I think, influence what happens there a little bit more because it's a little bit more decentralized and the nodes of power are a little more diffused in a typical university um, than they are, let's say, in a nation state or under capitalism as a, as a whole. And so the work at Chicago, I mean, what we there's a, there's a whole historical thing that I don't know if you want to get into kind of the actual history of the university that we uncovered. Um, but when we did uncover it and we did put it forward to get to your question of roadblocks, um, yeah, the roadblocks were were everywhere. So the University of Chicago took, I think, the very unique stance in that they actively tried to suppress the work. They actively denied the historical record, despite the fact that there is literally a slave register in their archives from the founder of the university. And there were plaques and memorials to that individual on its campus, which it recently removed while saying that he had nothing to do with the university. Interestingly enough, like, well, how did he get there? Um, this has been the university's kind of position. It's really unique as it relates to other institutions because others have at least not felt compelled to deny the historical record. Um, but the University of Chicago has, and largely that's because there's been such a prior to what we were doing, we stepped into, um, and we were already all of the, the members and I, myself, Kai Parker, um, uh, Kane Jordan, and one other member um, who I can talk about another time, um, who actually had to kind of step away from things because of back to obstacles, kind of the death threats, the right wing media, the media trolls, that when we put this history forward, people presumably even unaffiliated with the university were kind of coming for us. Uh, that individual felt for their own safety, they kind of needed to step away. But alumni community, we've had like, you know, white alumni kind of show up at our events with black, our kind of black community events and try to really violently oppose the work that we're doing to tell this truth. And so there's been a ton of opposition and we expected that. People should always kind of expect that. It wasn't um, as violent as it maybe even could have been because um, there, there was nothing, you know, nothing formally kind of uh, rose to the level of anything physical. But it was um, it was shocking because in a lot of ways, um, we thought that the university would kind of fall in line with its peer institutions. And if you know anything about the University of Chicago, they have these strange relationships to the Ivies in that they, in one sense, um, are jealous of them and are inferior to them, but in another sense, think they're better than them somehow. And they want to be them, but they think they're already like doing things differently. And so there's this weird culture at UChicago that um, we should have predicted in many ways that this was going to be their, their uh, response. We didn't know. I mean, I, I don't think we bothered to predict. We just went told the truth and presented the data, presented the information, opened up the archives, and then asked community organizations what they did. And we didn't care so much. So the one tactic we took, which is, I think, maybe instructive to people, other people doing this kind of work, we didn't run to the administration. And the, we kind of didn't care what the administration did or said in response to the work. Who we cared about were black communities that we were already kind of working with and mobilizing with and organizing with, who were working to stop the UCPD, the police department, from kind of harassing local black residents. Because UChicago, for those who don't know, is on the south side of Chicago, and it's surrounded by black communities. And it's this little island of kind of wealth, privilege, and, and whiteness that tries to exist by effectively policing the black communities around them, enforcing their borders. Um, they shot one of my students while I was there, one of my black students. Um, it's uh, a horrific kind of violent institution in this way. And we knew this. So who we cared about knowing 
this, this this truth about the university were the black communities we were already kind of uh, on the ground. So we held town halls and rallies and meetings. Uh, the founder of the university, Stephen Douglas, is buried on 35th and Cottage Grove on the south side of Chicago. So right after Charlottesville, we had a big rally there and um, let community members know the history. And it's basically open source software at this point. Do what you want with that data. Do what you want with that information. Take that narrative and make it work for your existing um, movements. And that what reparations looks like is whatever communities say reparations look like. Um, whatever communities are fighting for and that constitute repair or the secession of current harms or the prevention of future harms, all of those can be phrased as as reparations. And so one of the things we say is reparations or the, the history, as it were, provides the why, right? Why should the University of Chicago do X, Y, and Z? Because you have these historical ties to slavery, Jim Crow, and ongoing acts of discrimination. And there's a continuous line between there, which I think makes uh, – it's a powerful moral case at that point to any institution or individual who actually – presumes to have morality or some sense of right or wrong, right? It gives you the why. And so that, for me, history in many ways in this case, and the tie between reparations and, and the history is it offers the why. And an activist on the ground there told me there was a big um, kind of fight uh, over the presidential Obama presidential library on the south side of Chicago. And uh, it's going to displace all kinds of residents. It's going to increase the police presidents. It's going to, it's ramping up gentrification, the cost of rents are going through the roof because of this harm producing institution that communities were asking, can we have some offsets? Can we reduce the harm that this is happening? This is doing a little bit by having job guarantees, having uh, 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 rent uh, uh, caps, like frozen rents or build some affordable housing. And the activist friend that I have who went to the university administration kind of asking for, you know, to do some reparative work here and, and, offset this harm, they looked at him and they said, why would we do that? We don't have to do that. We're under no legal obligation to even talk with you. And to me, the history gives the why, right? It, it offers that, that why and gives a reason as to why these institutions should move. Now, it's a strong moral case. It's a, it's a political case. Will people listen? Will these institutions kind of bend? We've seen in some cases they do as little as they possibly can. That's kind of been the norm. And it's just up for activists to kind of keep pushing and keep reminding them of that narrative. The other thing I say is that it's a, it's a renewable resource, right? The narrative is a renewable resource that you can go back to time and time and time again because it never goes anywhere. It's the, that that's will always be the university's history, whether they deny it, whether they do a little bit to, to correct it, or whether they do nothing to correct it, the narrative will continue. And that truth-telling is in of itself part of the reparative process. Yeah, that's, that's a Great point. And there's so much there. I mean, it's, it's so interesting. Just the one, the one thing is when the university present or university responded to the activist fighting for repair, he says, it's not my legal duty. And it just shows this disconnect between law, what's, what's written into law, what we supposedly live by, and this moral, um, moral duty, moral right to actually help the community. Um, but more importantly, in that story, I'm just impressed by the way, um, you gave the community and you helped bring the community knowledge that, that this is an intensely local thing. It's a community thing. And, and it's about coalition building, um, that the repair is about building a coalition for what's necessary on the ground today, which goes towards um, this broader conversation about how reparations can look different in various places based on what communities actually need. Yeah. And, and to be very clear of uh, very important story, actually. So as we started to go around to different community organizations and share what we had kind of uncovered, um, we met one particular community uh, organization that was like, oh, yeah, we already know this, right? And this was the Bronzeville Historical Society, this amazing woman named Sherry Williams who was doing work there. We went to her uh, memorial. It wasn't a memorial. She did like a memorial service for the descendants of enslaved peoples that Stephen A. Douglas had owned. She already knew about that part of the story. And when we went to her, we connected with her. So it wasn't so much us kind of giving things to the community as it was just kind of working, sharing, and and exchanging things with the community because that community knowledge was actually already there. And um, But she didn't have the access, the resource. She has a blog, and she had written a blog post about it that, you know, 
two, three, four people had probably read, right? Um, talking about this memorialization that when we discovered this, quote unquote, discovered it, she had already discovered it. She had already been doing this service to honor the descendants of enslaved peoples of the Douglas Plantation that made the University of Chicago possible. Um, she had already been doing that for years when we arrived on it. So I think that's really important lesson also for academics to know that a lot of the so-called knowledge that we think we produce or know actually already exists within communities um, that are affected by this. And so people that are kind of theorizing reparations um, as some kind of public policy, some kind of, I just reviewed a book actually that's doing this where it's this real top-down administrative, bureaucratic, technocratic kind of approach to reparations. It's just gross and it has no real uh, relationship to what communities on the ground are even talking about. The, the knowledge there is so much deeper and so much better than I think anything academics can come up with in terms of, you know, some programmatic, uh, uh, you know, system that reparations is supposed to follow. Um, I think it's. I think it needs to be hor much more horizontal, much more bo bottom up, much more democratic, and that reparations are whatever communities say they are, and reparations need to be. And this is a UN kind of 101 principle, actually, in terms of reparations, is that when they've looked at different reparations programs that have been tried, the ones that go top down never work. Um, the ones that go bottom up always have trouble as well, because but for different reasons, and that. The, those in power usually resist the things that everyday people actually want. Um, but that's principle 101, is that those who have been harmed decide what constitutes repair for that harm. And it might not be what the state wants. It might not be, it certainly is not going to be what capital wants. And it might not be what academics, intellectuals, and the so-called middle-class leadership class of that community wants. So there's tension there that in other situations, um, particularly where I'm at now in, in Alabama, you see that. You've got uh, kind of middle-class certain interests that want things to be a certain way. But when you get on the ground with actual everyday people, the demands are very, very different. And so it's important for it to have a wide tent, but one that I think is led by the most vulnerable. Such a such an important point. Um, such an important point. And before I turn to my closing question, I want to I want to give you a, a chance on that on that because it's so important. If folks are interested in learning more about seeing work done on the ground, do you have a few like groups or movements that you want to shout out that people can look at um, for more information? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, there's so many groups doing so many so much uh, good work down there. Uh, the one that I'm uh, the one I always keep coming back to. Well, first thing. Watch the documentary, The Interrupters, for folks that want to see kind of what reparative, restorative justice on the ground might look like, an alternative to policing, a way to deal with interpersonal violence that tries to kind of cut out the state. Because for those that don't know, that documentary and that organization, which is kind of working and not working, it came out of the ceasefire organization that's trying to think about interpersonal violence and reparations as a daily practice in which uh, can, be, can both stop interpersonal community harm as well as provide a foundation where the, the state and particularly the police can be kind of cut out of those communities. I think that's a really powerful thing for people to, to kind of watch and view. Uh, the other organization, uh, Good Kids Mad City on the south side of Chicago is doing amazing, amazing work. Um, also thinking about this intersection of police violence as well as community and interpersonal violence and trying to think of ways in which, again, reparations can be part of uh, people's daily lives. They did this had this great camp. They're doing great work now on COVID relief, just being out in the community, um, kind of trying to repair the harm that has happened, even though they didn't cause the harm. So one way to think about this is there's uh, NCOBRA on the south side of Chicago, another organization, um, which their national president is currently on the south side of Chicago. So they have a Chicago branch, but they're a national organization. So that's the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. He has a concept that I think Good Kids Mad City is utilizing of internal reparations. This idea that reparations is somehow, you know, a petition to the state and that the state is to provide is part of the equation. It's not that the state shouldn't be offering up resources. The state can, should facilitate uh, the, the redistribution of capital um, that's owed to, enslaved, to the descendants of enslaved peoples in those communities. But internal reparations can happen, right? Uh, individuals can do things whether or not they cause the harm or not. And even if they're part, part of the community that has been harmed, um, 
there's internal work that can be done. And that's what Good Kids Mad City um, is really doing. Um, and, and Cobra has been on the forefront of this, you know, since uh, a long time. I mean, they really trace themselves back to the 60s in a lot of ways and have been fighting this fight through Queen Mother Moore, the Republic of New Africa, and now in Cobra. Amazing organization um, that's behind HR 40, the current legislation, but is behind so many other things that people never hear about and know about from local slavery uh, disclosure ordinances that are now getting some teeth and able to uh, kind of provide uh, a, a form of reparations um, to individual lawsuits, uh, stuff at the United Nations, having the United Nations declare slavery a crime against humanity. That organization is incredible. And one campaign um, that I would also kind of point to um, now is the more than diversity campaign um, at the University of Chicago. So if you just do the hashtag, um, or if listeners do the hashtag, more than diversity, this is a, um, a strike, a partial strike, and a full boycott of the University of Chicago that was instituted by black faculty and has now been supported by thousands and thousands of academics around the world who say, we will not go to the University of Chicago until they meet the demands of local activists, including the reparations at UChicago Working Group. We want them to acknowledge their ties to slavery. So if you look at the whole uh, disclosure, the whole um, uh, uh, petition or the open letter, um, it talks about the fact that the university is going to be boycotted and that the faculty are not going to participate in these diversity and inclusion kind of charades that the university wants them to, to do and say, hey, look how wonderful and diverse our campus is while they brutalize black communities, while they shoot black students, while they uh, are a leading cause of gentrification on the south side of Chicago. Um, they're talking about abolishing the University of Police, and they're talking about reparations to black communities. Those are the main kind of two big demands that are coming out of there, as well as issues with uh, uh, the study of race, uh, having a race center, expanded funding. To, so there's on-campus things, you know, expansion of uh, uh, um, programs for uh, uh, black and brown students. But the main two things that I think coming out of there that are really unprecedented, that I've never seen a partial faculty strike and a boycott that demand the abolition of the campus police and reparations to black communities for slavery, Jim Crow, the carceral state, and current acts of discrimination. That's unprecedented. And so that campaign, I really uh, would love for folks to sign on to and just realize the boycott is still on. Um, you shouldn't be accepting any uh, invitations or participating in any events related to the University of Chicago until they make amends, until they repair. And part of that's getting rid of the police and uh, getting right with black communities. Yeah, that's great. All those groups are incredible, doing good work on the ground, this idea of mutual aid. Um, and my closing question, I mean, you're, I ask it to, to everyone on the podcast. Um, you may just have the same answer you just gave, or you may give, give something different because the last one was quite um, impressive about what's going on today. So what gives you hope today? So this is a curious question um, because um, I, I guess I, the first thing I usually say to this is I don't believe in hope. Um, I believe in possibilities. Because um, as a historian, I mean, one of the things that you, we always know is that the future is not uh, predictable. This is this goes back to Nietzsche even, and one of some of the earliest professional kind of historians were thinking about the uses of history. One of the things that Nietzsche realized that anybody just thinks about it for a second realizes is that the study of the past can never lead us to an understanding of a prediction about the future. Um, all these any social science that tries to do this predictive work, and economists are the worst at this. They're the worst for a lot of reasons, but they're the worst at this, um, predicting X, Y, or Z is going to happen in the economy. There's so many variables you simply don't know. So this idea of kind of hope as something that uh, uh, is based in, you know, the moral arc of the universe. So going back to King, you know, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Here, I like ta Coates's take on this, where he says, no, the moral arc of the universe bends towards chaos. If history teaches us anything, it's that we can't know kind of what the future is going to be. And so hope can in many ways be as debilitating, I think, for activists and, and disappointing in many ways for activists as it can be uh, uh, emancipatory. So for Coates, he has this notion called the struggle. And he and I have talked about this, uh, about kind of the abolition or first round of abolitionists. So slavery abolitionists, currently prison abolitionists, the slavery abolitionists had no delusions that slavery would ever end in their lifetime or at all. They, they had no hope. 
They didn't fight because they had hope. They didn't fight because they thought freedom was right around the corner. They fought because that's what you do. They fought because they were morally compelled to fight. So enslaved peoples trying to escape slavery, it wasn't hope that's driving them. It's, it's a survival and it's a, a sense of doing what has to be done. And so here I also return to, to Wilderson, to Frank Wilderson, and this idea that this idea that there's some redemptive arc for black people is a very comforting thing, I think, for white people. And it's comforting for some black people too, right? In terms of churches and things like that, you know, redemption. And, and so I believe in redemption because I believe in reparations. But the idea that that's somehow guaranteed and that there's some kind of arc that's already been set in place and that redemption will happen. Wilderson talks about the fact that one of the unique conditions in many ways of anti-blackness and, and, and blackness in general is that there is no redemptive arc in the way that there is for colonized peoples, that the way there is for, um, let's say capitalism, right? Capitalism you can just get rid of, right? But for Wilderson, if you think about what are, there is no actual redemptive, what, what would that look like? What would a redemptive arc for black people look like? Formerly, descendants of formerly enslaved peoples in the Americas, the Caribbean, etc. There's no return. There's no going back. There's, there, there isn't kind of a redemptive arc. There is no hope. And kind of realizing that and is actually, to me, a very liberating kind of thing because that pressure to kind of win is not there. Winning is not why you do what you do. You do what you do because it's the right thing to do. You fight for justice because you fight for justice. You don't fight for justice because you think you're going to win something and that it's going to work or that it's part of some master kind of plan that's going to, at the end, kind of hallelujah freedom's here. We don't know. And one of the things Coates often points out is that for enslaved peoples, when we kind of say that, oh, this was all part of some big master plan and, you know, they fought so that we can vote kind of thing, <laughs> like, you know, this, these strange kind of formulations, um, those people that lived it, they didn't, they didn't see that arc. They never saw that. They lived, they were born enslaved. They died enslaved. They fought as much as they could in whatever ways they could in order to kind of get free or to be free, or to just survive that system. But th that's all they had. They, all they had was that kind of moment. And when we re-narrate that and say it's all part of some hopeful kind of positive trajectory, this back to King's moral arc of the universe, we really do violence in many ways to the experiences they had. And we really think about things from our perspective rather than the perspective of historical actors. So some of that's kind of wonky history stuff in that, you know, making sure that you're being true to the lived experiences of people who didn't necessarily think in terms of hope or act in terms of hope. Um, we need to really hear that in a lot of ways and realize that I think fighting through the midst of hopelessness can be just as motivating as fighting for things because of hope. That's well said. Um, and that gives me a lot to think on. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I, will certainly have a lot to mull over. And it makes sense um, that there's this constant struggle based on what is right now, the, the conditions in which we live and in which liberation for us now looks like um, and for peoples around the community. What does liberation mean? So I want to I thank you um, for being in conversation. I learned so much. I'm going to be thinking about this um, and thinking about some of these ideas for a while. Very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been great. And I want to thank everyone for listening to uh, learn about the carceral state and the fight for justice, reparations, and equity. Um, we hope you'll engage on Twitter and tune in to future episodes.